Welcome to Impact Medicom's podcast series on COVID-19 immunization. I'm your host, Anna Christofides. In this episode, we discuss the impact of COVID-19 on immunocompromised patients with a focus on solid organ transplantation and how we can better protect these people. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Chagla, who is an associate professor at McMaster University, co-medical director of infection control at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and a consultant in infection control at Woodstock General Hospital. Dr. Chagla's research and clinical interests include monoclonal antibody use in COVID-19, infections in renal transplantation, global health and tropical medicine, education and antimicrobial stewardship, and ultrasound in infectious diseases. Hope you enjoy. So thanks so much, Dr. Chagla, for joining us today uh, to discuss COVID-19 immunization and its role in protecting our most vulnerable populations, including those who have undergone solid organ transplantation. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I just as a first question, I'm just wondering, what is the usual response to COVID-19 vaccination just in the general population? So, I mean, these are really effective vaccines in the general population. We've seen efficacy in the clinical trials of over 90 to 95 percent in protecting against symptomatic COVID-19 and a fairly high uh, um, uh, protection against severe outcomes, even even in those who have breakthrough infections. Unfortunately, with the Omicron era, that efficacy has gone down a little bit. The vaccines still seem very effective. Three doses now, more than two, where you see 50 to 60% protection a few months out from that third dose. But the you know positive news is that uh, people are still protected against severe disease with, with two or three doses of vaccines uh, in the Omicron era, which still remains well above 80 to 90 percent in people that have completed a full vaccine series. Oh, that's great. It's really reassuring. And But are there certain groups of people who would have a reduced response to vaccination? And what could be the reasons for this? Yeah, so there are individuals that that don't make as robust a response uh, to vaccinations, and and really that can be broken down into people that are um, immune compromised due to underlying conditions, or people that are really overtly immune compromised. So in that first category of people, because of underlying conditions, we know things like age, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease. They're not as immunosuppressive states, but their responses to vaccines in the past have not been that great. Uh, And often they need second, third doses of vaccines to really get that protection uh, as compared to the general population. And then there are the conditions that are overtly immunosuppressive. So um, hematologic malignancies, patients with lymphoma, patients who undergo bone marrow transplantation, patients on cytotoxic chemotherapy, patients on who have congenital or acquired immunodeficiency states, patients who are on immunosuppressant therapies like antimetabolites, ta- uh, calcineurin inhibitors, uh, high-dose steroids, biologic agents, uh, and then finally, patients who have solid organ transplants, for the same reasons, they're considered immunosuppressed because of the multiple immunosuppressive agents they need to be on as part of their regimen. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense, and it must be very difficult for those patients. And speaking of that, what is the psychological impact of the pandemic for people who are immunocompromised? Yeah, it's difficult, right? Because I, I think we we have lived with different restrictions. We've had, you know, people protected by the fact that others are are protecting them. But these are individuals that are part of our society that need to work. 
that have children in school, that have grandparents, you know, that have to interact with the healthcare system. Uh, and all of that creates a lot more uneasiness, a lot more risk of infection and severe outcomes in that population. Even in the context of vaccines, where much of the population has now been significantly protected against the worst outcomes of this disease, that population still has risks of acquiring the disease and still having adverse outcomes, even in the era of vaccination in that population. Mm -hmm. And uh, in what percentage of the population are we talking about here? Yeah, so, you know, U.S. studies suggest about 3% of the population would be considered immune compromised based on medications or underlying conditions. So, you know, that's not an unreasonable amount. Certainly the vast majority of the population has that protection from vaccines. Uh, But that 3% is distributed into society, into normal jobs, into workplaces, into large families, into all the risky environments that we've seen COVID-19 transmit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very difficult, I'm sure, uh, for those those people to live a normal life, uh, given all of that. Um, and so what is really the difference in the vaccine response in these people? So getting to neutralizing antibodies amongst those who are immune compromised, you know, for example, a large trial in solid organ transplant showed that even two doses reached a 67% threshold. Three doses actually got a little bit higher. In other immunosuppressed groups, you see uh, reductions in that percentage of people that are protected against clinical disease. So uh, Pfizer at about 60%, AstraZeneca at about 60%, you know, a significant degree lower. And we do see that these groups are first on the list for third or fourth doses to be able to trigger a response. But even in studies of people on high levels of immunosuppression, four doses even may not be able to trigger them to get a neutralizing antibody that's considered protective. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, that population may not derive protection. Some of them will, but some of them will not derive protections from having vaccinations as, again, an immunocompetent person would with two or three doses. Mm -hmm. Right. And so going into detail into that specific group of solid organ transplant patients, what are the specific risk factors that they face? So number one, you know, solid organ transplants uh, have a risk because of the fact that they're immunosuppressed. So they, they, they're on multiple agents, usually a steroid, an antimetabolite, and a calcineurin inhibitor. They may have risks because of concomitant issues with higher doses of immunosuppression with things like rejection. There are issues with their underlying disease. You know, renal transplant individuals are often older, often diabetic or hypertensive, which then is its own risk factor. And and often with, you know, years of dialysis and, and, and cardiovascular disease, which may increase the risk of complications, even with a mild case of COVID-19. And, you know, I, this population is a population that when they get their transplant is often given, you know, the ability to go out in public, to work, to do the things that they were wanting to do when they were suffering with their end organ disease. Uh, And so, you know, they have a population-based risk of being relatively well people that are highly functional. And so a context can be in very front-facing professions that uh, increases their risk of hospitalization. 
I think the last bit is that these individuals have a high degree of healthcare exposure. They have to see healthcare providers intermittently. Uh, and so there are many different people involved in their lives for their kidney care or their graft care that then uh, that then increases their risk of, of acquiring COVID-19 from no, the number of contacts they have to deal with as part of their day-to-day lives. Right. And does their risk uh, change throughout the course of their uh, disease? So, for example, pre-transplant or post-transplant, and how long are they really at risk for? So, you know, again, immunosuppression and transplantation lasts for the vast majority of transplants for the life of their transplant or or their lives. Um, and so, you know, pre-transplant, their underlying disease often creates the risk factor. So cardiovascular disease, chronic uh, liver disease, chronic kidney disease, which are often end-organ conditions, those are increasing risks. At the time of transplant, particularly because of their induction therapy uh, and the higher levels of their maintenance immunosuppressive therapy, they're often at higher risk kind of in that first year or two post-transplant. Many do kind of taper down on their immunosuppression years later. Liver transplants, for example, can taper down significantly and often be on minimal agents. But there still remains a risk while people are on immunosuppressive therapy. There remains an increased risk if people have to be treated for concomitant rejection, which often requires an increase in that immunosuppressive therapy months to years after their initial transplant. Uh, And so these people do have a lifelong risk of immunosuppression that unfortunately puts them at higher risk of not having an appropriate vaccine response, as well as being at risk for the severe complications of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. And what can we do, you know, for these patients to protect them better? So, you know, number one is still vaccination. And, and that's important. We do know that these individuals do make, some of them do make responses and even a, a borderline protective response and, and or triggering of other immune effector cells like T cells may still be enough to prevent people from getting seriously ill or if they get seriously ill, it may protect them enough from dying. Number two is making sure that their family members and people around them have access to vaccines. As as any reduction in transmission going to that individual is going to have effects on them than acquiring COVID-19. Number three is adherence to the public health measures for those populations. So the use of a well-fitted mask, a medical mask or higher, uh, you know, physical distancing, avoiding high-risk environments, avoiding people who are ill uh, as much as possible uh, to reduce individual risk. And then right now, number four is as we are entering an era where we have access to treatments is that individuals who have these underlying immune deficiencies access testing as early as possible and access treatment as early as possible to then you know add another layer of protection for risk. So drugs like uh, citrovimab, which is a monoclonal antibody, uh, or Paxlovid, or some of the other drugs coming down the pipeline may offer some protection after they've acquired COVID-19. But again, that is dependent on where they are, where they have access to testing, where they have access to these treatments, which isn't unfortunately uh, equitable across the board for these patients. And so how do some of these therapies work that could be used in addition to vaccination to protect these patients? So we have uh, oral antivirals and the two that are coming or come to the market are Paxlovid, Nermatrelavir, Ritonavir, and Molinipavir. Paxlovid is a protease inhibitor. This inhibits the viral protease, the enzyme that breaks down the big protein the virus makes that chops it up into little proteins that that form a new virus. 
that's inhibited. The virus can't replicate and the virus can't go on. And great studies within five days of symptom onset, you can reduce the risk of hospitalization in high-risk groups by about 70 to 80%. Molinipavir is a, a, an RNA polymerase chain terminase inhibitor. So it incorporates itself into the RNA of the replicating virus and, and can't replicate past when the drug is incorporated and, and then leads to ineffective re- replication of the virus, which then leads to death of the virus and, and an inability to replicate. Uh, and in studies, reduces the risk of severe outcomes in patients by about 30%. Finally, we have monoclonal antibodies. These are different targets to the spike protein of COVID-19. Uh, some of them are multiple drug products, so casarivimab and devimab, um, uh, or they're single monoclonal products like citrovimab. Uh, and again, given to the right patients early, uh, within five to seven days of symptom onset, you get high levels of neutralizing antibodies as they're injected, which then lead to coding of the virus, decreased ability for the virus to infect cells, a triggering of immune responses to clear the virus. Uh, and again, in well-done studies, a reduction in hospitalization by about 70 to 80% in people that can access these therapies early. The big underlying issue, though, amongst all of them is that ability to access therapy early, uh, recognizing that's when the virus is the most active, but that creates the most barriers for patients as they have to be able to recognize their symptoms, access a test, get a test result back, navigate how to get treatment and get treatment all within that five to seven day window, there is a big risk of missing patients if they're, they're, they don't initiate that cascade early. And, and is there a way to protect these patients before they even would have been exposed to COVID-19 in terms of addition to vaccination? Absolutely. So there is now a monoclonal antibody that has data for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And so having high levels of passive antibodies in individuals that are high risk that may not make their own antibodies in response to a vaccine. Uh, and again, you know, offer them that extra layer of protection in the sense that should they encounter COVID-19, they have have antibodies on board that can then lead to an early immune response, lead to early clearance of the virus, and hopefully at least reduce the risk of getting infected, but in the the worst case, reduce the risk of severe complications of the COVID-19, recognizing their native immune response may not be adequate to actually deal with the virus. And I know you mentioned the active immunization. What is the difference between passive versus active? So passive immunization is, you know, again, the use of monoclonal antibodies or or serum-derived antibodies from individuals. And so the body doesn't do anything to derive these antibodies. We get them either from synthetic sources or from humans or from animals. They're concentrated in high degrees, and then they're injected into the individual, either before exposure, as we see with with the monoclonal antibodies used with COVID-19, or immediately after exposure or with early treatment, as we see with some of the antibodies we use for COVID-19, some of the antibodies we use for diseases like rabies, for example, uh, where antibodies are are often inoculated into the site of, of an animal bite for varicella zoster, where we use immunoglobulins for high-risk populations like uh, immunocompromised individuals, transplants, pregnant women, very young children in order to prevent the complications of chickenpox, or right after symptoms develop. Active immunization 
is using the body's native immune response to generate those antibodies. So using a vaccine target, like a live vaccine, so an attenuated virus or organism, a toxin, a protein, uh, or some combination of vaccines like an mRNA vaccine, uh, where the antibodies are actually actively generated by the body's immune response. And, and again, that's that's the principle of most of our immunization strategy for many of the diseases we deal with. And so this kind of prophylaxis therapy, would that be categorized more as passive or active? So this would be passive immunization because of the fact that yeah, we're synthesizing these antibodies and giving them to individuals. They don't generate them. They use them in order to defend against severe complications and infection. Um, but again, the derivation of these antibodies is in the laboratory or in other individuals as compared to at the level of that individual's immune response. Okay, that, that makes sense. So in terms of going back to the patients with solid organ transplantation, what would you, uh, you can you share any stories of patients that were maybe under your care who could have benefited from this sort of additional protection? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think throughout this pandemic, we've seen lots of uh, solid organ transplants. Personally, I've seen many uh, patients who are on rituximab, patients who have hematologic cancers, people who are undergoing chemotherapy. You know, they were not given the protection of a vaccine. Often they were exposed by not necessarily their own behavior, having a child in the household who acquired it from school or daycare through their jobs where, you know, either we were able to intervene early with some of these therapies, but, you know, unfortunately, because of how many different points in the cascade, some individuals were not. And even mild disease in some of these higher risk individuals, those who are elderly, who have a solid organ transplants, who have cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease ongoing, even those mild complications can sometimes lead to hospitalizations, to myocardial infarctions, to worsening of renal function. And again, you know, many of those patients would benefit from an extra layer of security to minimize the risk of them having severe complications and really try to minimize the risk of them getting COVID-19 altogether, recognizing that vaccines, you know, were not enough to protect them against those complications. And so thinking about the quality of life of these people, how might an option like that improve their quality of life? Yeah, I mean, I think it gives people the confidence that they can live the lives that their colleagues, friends, families uh, are going to, that their kids can go to school and have normal childhoods without necessarily, you know, facing the risk of infecting their parent, um, without having to be on the stress of every symptom and trying to get testing and trying to get treatment uh, as early as possible, recognizing that, that they do need to do that right now that they can continue to work in higher risk environments and support families rather than necessarily kind of staying locked down, that they could travel and do some of the things that they missed out on. And many transplants have suffered going into their transplant with their disease. Uh, and, you know, again, it's a window for them to get back to normal life and really giving that to them. And I think for other individuals outside of the transplant, you know, uh, there are lots of people, unfortunately, diagnosed with cancer that need chemotherapy, that this is, you know, very, very tricky for them to navigate how to get chemotherapy while uh, um, dealing with their families or dealing with their profession, et cetera, knowing that this is an ongoing risk to them. 
and it gives them, again, another layer of protection. And finally, I think from a healthcare system that deals with transplant individuals, you know, we, we, we also, you know, want to impact the quality of life for those individuals. We don't want our transplant units to be filled with patients. We want to be offering transplants to as many patients as possible to improve their quality of life. And having that extra layer of protection amongst that population also helps us as clinicians to be able to prioritize transplants into those individuals feeling a bit more secure that we can kind of give them the immunosuppression, we can give them the care without feeling like we're standing on edge waiting for them to get COVID-19. Yeah, that would be that would be great, wouldn't it? It would definitely be a big improvement. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what advice or additional advice do you have for physicians who are caring for these patients? So number one, make sure that patients' vaccines are up to date. Even third and fourth doses of vaccines may make a little bit of that difference that gets people to uh, you know, less of a disease impact. Number two, if there is treatment available in your community like Paxlovid or monoclonal antibodies, that you counsel patients on how to get tested appropriately, how to get access to treatment appropriately or connect with those networks so that patients can meet that timeline for five to seven days. And then as drugs that come to the market like monoclonal antibodies that are used for pre-exposure prophylaxis are available, you know, advocate for these patients to be the first in line because they are going to derive the most protection from them. They're patients that have gone through a lot of psychological stress through this pandemic, trying to protect themselves from the worst complications of this disease. Uh, and, you know, giving them the ability to access these treatments, you know, is, is not only life-saving and life-altering, but also, you know, is such an improvement for mental health for these patients as well. Well, this has been really informative, Dr. Tagle. I really appreciate you spending the time discussing this topic, and uh, I'm sure it will help a lot of people to understand how they can improve the outcome for these patients. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much.